Today's guest is Tanner Murdaugh. Tanner dreamed of becoming a musician in his teens, but his life was derailed by drugs and alcohol. He returned to university to become a therapist, but started to experience chronic pain. Eventually, at age 23, he was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. He thought he would have to live with the pain for the rest of his life. Then Tanner discovered the work of Dr. John E. Sarno. Tanner now practices a relatively new form of therapy called pain reprocessing therapy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Softly Spoken is an introvert's guide to thinking out loud about identity, meaning, and the moments that make us who we are. A mix of stories and interviews, Softly Spoken is a podcast that takes a deep dive into the hidden moments that shape us. It's an invitation for you to consider the version of you you are creating right now. What are you learning about yourself in the process? My name is Stefan, and I'm your host and introvert-in-chief. If you could just describe what it is that you do now career-wise. Yeah, so right now, I started a company that works with um, chronic pain. And we work with chronic pain in a little bit of a different way. So the area that I work in is called neuroplastic pain. And neuroplastic pain is really pain that doesn't have like a structural cause but really only occurs in the brain. We struggle as a community to set on a, on a certain term. You know, in the DSM, this would be considered like somatic symptom disorder. In far, far past, like it was kind of called psychosomatic, which I don't love that term. Right, the pain is all in your head kind of thing. Yeah, and I always tell clients right away, like the pain is very real. It's just that there's no structural cause which can be hard to wrap your head around, right? Because we, we come to understand at a young age that when we feel pain, there must be some type of damage going on in our body. I always tell people, if you put your hand on a hot stove, your brain sends you pain. And that's really important because it sends you pain so that you lift your hand before you know you cause further damage. It'd be the same if you were running and you sprained your ankle. Instantly, messages from your body go up to your brain your brain interprets them accurately and it's like, you know, oh my God, we're in pain or we're in danger and it sends pain to the ankle so that you know you have to stop running. But neuroplastic pain is different in the sense that what happens is safe signals are going up from the body to the brain, but the brain misinterprets them and it interprets them as dangerous. And as a result, pain's produced even in the absence of kind of structural damage. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So that's, you know, what I work with. The case I always explain to people, which I think really explains it well, is, you know, long ago that there was a case that would study where a construction worker jumped down on a nail accidentally and the nail pierced right through his boot. So he could see it coming out the other side. And instantly he was in like drastic amount of pain, rushed to hospital. But when the boot was removed, the nail had actually gone right between his toes and not even injured him at all or scratched him. And so that would be an example of how our brain can start to misinterpret danger. Okay, right. So he thought, you know, his brain saw this nail coming out of the shoe and interpreted that as this had gone through the foot and responded accordingly, which is causing pain. <laughs> yeah, 
okay, but then when they took the boot off, the nail hadn't pierced him at all. It had gone through the toes, but his brain had misfired that information. Yeah, that's exactly it, because safe signals were being sent from his body, right? Like the texture of the sock, the tightness of, a, of his boot. There was no injury. Interesting. But the brain had misinterpreted danger. And this makes a lot of sense, because when you think, and you know, I can share about my own difficulties with chronic pain uh, in this area, but every person who has chronic pain has usually the one primary fear, and that's that something is wrong with my body that's causing this. Right. So when that fear of something being wrong with your body, and you, you kind of obsess on that idea, the reality is, is that that fear actually makes your brain feel that there is danger, and then pain continues to be produced, even though there's no actual structural damage that's, being, that's actually occurring, right, that's causing the pain. If we can just backtrack a little bit, a 10-year-old kid, you know, you're starting out your life. Yeah. At that point, you probably weren't imagining that you were going to make a career in, in treating uh, neuroplastic pain. No, no. Yeah, let's just explore, you know, a little bit about how you got from uh, a kiddo to being who you are today. Um, so as a 10-year-old, what did you dream of doing with your life? I know from around that time, like I really wanted to be a mu musician. Like I want, like I played guitar, and I was really into music. And you know, in pre-adolescence, early teenage years, like I played in lots of bands and was like really focused on that. At the time, that was my big dream for sure: is that I wanted to be a musician of some sort. You had the rock and roll lifestyle in mind. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. And uh, yeah, I, I remember being very convinced many times in my teenage years that I was going to, like our band was going to make it and we were going to be super successful, right? I think that's the dream that every young kid has when they're, when they're in a band, right? Which is very fun. Like it was a very fun time to, to dream about that. And we played shows, obviously when we were a little older, but we started playing shows and doing things of that nature. So Okay, so you you dreamed like many kiddos do of you know being a rock star or being some sort of musician, the next Bob Dylan maybe. <laughs> yeah. So how did you go from that to living a life of service, really, at this point? Yeah. So there were some moments that led to this that obviously shaped my identity with music. Unfortunately, oftentimes can come drugs and alcohol. Right. When I was younger, I became that became part of the lifestyle. And so that became more and more a part of what it was. And so actually at a, at a young age, like I think I was 17, like my parents put me into like a drug treatment facility, not willingly at that point. <laughs> you know, and that was a very long process, but you know, through that became sober and, you know, that changed me in, in a lot of ways. And I think that really motivated me with the counselors that I worked with, that this is something that I wanted to do. That was a kind of a crossroad moment for you where you're yeah. like, okay, like I want to do something helpful to others in the way, same way that some of these counselors were there for you as an 18 year old kid trying to figure out your own path. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think I just saw things in the people that were working with me and, and helping me that something that I wanted to do. And I think that's a, that's a shift, right? Because when you're addicted to drugs and alcohol, it very much becomes about your own needs and very much, you know, getting the drug of your choice. Right. Mm -hmm. And 
a lot of time and effort really, and all your attention gets focused in that. So when I became sober, I became more focused on like what kind of person I wanted to be and how I wanted to support others and, and help people. And that became very important and I think gradually grew, especially in early adulthood. What was it about your recovery that you think helped make that shift for you? I think, you know, a big piece with addiction is the consequences that come with it. Through addiction, you kind of lose sense of that empathy for others. And that came back. Like, I felt like my conscience came back full force. That was an important moment. Like, I, I remember thinking, you know, I don't want to treat people the way I've been treating them. That simple idea when I was like, and obviously it's grown over time, but that simple idea really changed a lot of my actions moving forward. And I became very much about the morals that I wanted to have for myself. And into early adulthood, that became more the ethics that I wanted to follow and how that's important. Thinking about that experience of addiction and then also the experience of pain and some of the parallels in some ways, you know, one thing that comes to mind is that pain can be all-consuming, right? Like it can sort of take over your focus, your attention. Mm -hmm. It can be very self-directed in the sense that you don't necessarily have the spoons or the, the ability to really feel empathy for others because you're so trapped in your own experience of that pain. Yeah, I wonder if you see any parallels between your experiences with addiction and your experiences with chronic pain. Yeah, like I think there is parallels in the sense of you know, most people with neuroplastic pain feel unsafe with their pain sensations and they almost focus on them intensely. And there's this, like you said, this all-consuming trying to fix it, right? And I think I went through that when I, when I became in chronic pain. And I think that also spirals, like when we talked about, you know, when your brain feels in danger, pain can be produced. A lot of that was around feeling emotionally unsafe. And my environment reasonably was safe, but it was just this this sense of feeling um, emotionally unsafe that I think brought on you know addiction for sure, and then later on feeling emotionally unsafe started to trigger chronic pain for me. Oh, okay. So I think there there is a parallel there for sure. Yeah, and it seems like that theme of safety is true in both yeah. experiences. Well, yeah, just so we get a picture of your journey, you, you go into addictions treatment. Um, at that point, were you dealing with chronic pain or, or when did chronic pain, I guess, enter your story? Like I went through treatment. I, I finished off when I was 18 and then started to go to school, went to university. And I remember I was in, I was in psychology and, and shifted to social work. And life was starting to pick up in my early 20s, right? Like I think anyone in their early 20s, there's a huge transitions that take place just naturally, right? You're moving into your career more. You know, me and my partner were getting more serious at the time. And all these stressful events and transitions, now looking back on it, really, I started to experience pain. And I'm a very physical guy. Like I like to work out. I like to exercise. And that was a huge part of from early in sobriety. And then, you know, I think I was 20, 21, 22. Me and my friend were training for a triathlon. And, you know, I started to get pain in my right knee. And I was running lots. Like I was running a lot to train for this. And I started getting pain in my right knee. So I was like, oh, this kind of makes sense. I kept working out other parts of my body. And then over the course of four years, I had so many symptoms start to come up. So it started with my knee, 
And then I think it was my left shoulder and then my right shoulder. And then my arms were in significant pain where I couldn't really, you know, I couldn't exercise. That was definitely out of the question. And it just spread. And, you know, as I kind of moved through life over those four years, my back started to hurt. You went to a doctor. and Oh, yeah. I went to doctors. I got every test. Every serious systemic disorder was ruled out. The thing around chronic pain is that you look hard enough in your body, you're going to find abnormalities, right? Right. And it doesn't mean that necessarily they're causing the pain, I always tell people, but a lot of times they get associated to them because you know most of us have abnormalities in our spine. That's the reality. By the age of 21, 50% of us have degenerative discs. Wow, that much of us. Yeah, abnormalities in our body are normal. We develop wear and tear as we kind of go through life. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they found certain things. Like I got told I had hypersensitive nerves and inflammation in my hamstrings. And, and eventually they came to the diagnosis of fibromyalgia. And that's a scary thing. Like I think I was 23. Wow. Can you just uh, maybe give a definition of what fibromyalgia is? Yeah, so fibromyalgia is a weird disorder that lots of people get diagnosed with. And, you know, there's no pathology in the body that can really be shown that's changed, except that you have widespread pain in certain parts of your body. And it kind of just means you have pain in your muscles and, and tendons and nerves, right? Um, and they're not really sure. Right, but there's no cause or reason for it. Yeah, there's no, there's no reason for it. And so when I was given that diagnosis, I was basically told, like, you're going to be dealing with pain the rest of your life. Jeez. Which is terrifying. At 23, yeah. That, yeah. That's quite a, quite a thing to put on someone. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it was a scary moment. And, you know, I had exhausted everything. Like, I think I went to physio many times a week, Cairo. Like, I did everything, but nothing was getting better. And, in fact, it was worsening. How did that experience of, okay, so first it starts in the knee, you can deny that it's as serious as it is because, you know, it's just your knee, it's probably just injured, it's going to get well, right? Like there's still that hopefulness at that point, but the pain starts to move to other parts of that body. Yeah. And you're going, you're getting tests, you know, and during that period, I imagine, you know, there's still that hopefulness that somebody will find a cause, find a reason for why this is happening. And then you get this diagnosis of fibromyalgia and that there is no cause. And on top of that, this is going to be your life yeah. at 23. Like, how did that impact you at the time? Oh, it was terrifying. I think I was incredibly anxious and very preoccupied with my symptoms of pain, which worsens pain, you know, neuroplastic pain, the more we focus on it intensely and try and change it and get rid of it, it just makes your brain feel more and more in danger. Mm. And there was just constant fear, like I'd wake up and the first thing I do is scan my body. People that I work with, that's, that's the reality. The first thing they do is they wake up and they scan their body, like, where is it hurt today? You know, what's my day going to be like? And then you're really amplifying that feeling because you mentioned earlier, right? Like the, there's already with pain that sense of your body is unsafe. Yes. And then <laughs> every morning you're basically reinforcing that by scanning to see what's wrong today. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just constant fear. I think a lot of despair in the, at that time for sure of like, this is what it is. And what I teach people is, you know, I started having weird experiences with the pain where it didn't really make sense. So I had this moment, I was working at the university and between sessions, I would like lie down on the ground because my back would just hurt so bad. And I was doing lots of meditation and stuff. And I was doing some type of like hopeful meditation and something just clicked where I felt so hopeful about the future and imagine 
you know, my life with a family and, and all of this. Hmm. And instantly the pain dissipated completely. Like it went from an eight out of 10 probably to nothing. And I stood up and there was no pain. Wow. And that's pretty, <laughs> pretty impressive. Yeah. And like, so you were, you were just doing meditation on your own. Just doing it. And it just came up as a thought. Yeah. And I remember thinking, you know, this doesn't make sense. There's, there's something wrong with my body. Just changing my emotional state wouldn't make the pain disappear completely. And, you know, it did come back the next day. But for that night, like it was completely gone. And I think that sent me on a bit of a journey of learning about what I call neuroplastic pain. It goes by lots of names like mind-body syndrome, things of that nature. But, you know, I started reading books on it. Um, There's an author called Dr. Sarno. In the 70s, he kind of discovered that a lot of pain, chronic pain, isn't structurally caused and is caused from fearing the pain and is caused from feeling, you know, unsafe and having emotions that you're not expressing. He kind of was into that psychoanalysis kind of area. But I read his book and to give you an idea, and I was, you know, working towards being a therapist, so I knew some of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And within the first month of doing some of this and reducing the fear and starting to believe this was neuroplastic, fifty percent of my pain was gone within one month. So after four years of suffering, within a month it was half gone. Wow. And over the course of two more months, it almost dissipated completely. And I got married during this time. I went on my honeymoon and I was playing ping pong. I love ping pong. And it was amazing. Like I was running, I was playing ping pong, which was a lot of jagged movements and all of that. And there was no pain. And it was just this amazing turnaround where the pain reduced almost completely. Was there a fear that the pain would come back? Like that this was just a respite, like a, you know, a like a remission like you have with cancer, for example? Yeah. Or, or like, how did you make sense of it at the time, do you think? There was fear, because that was almost a decade ago. It was a long time ago. In times of stress, the pain comes back. But, you know, once you kind of understand the ideas around this and that, you know, there is nothing wrong with my body, you can reduce that fear. You know, I talk about people viewing their pain kind of through like a lens of safety. When you usually are in pain, it's kind of this lens of danger you always view things through, right? And that was reassuring. Like when the pain came up, I didn't panic. I could calm myself. I could explore the sensation and reinforce that, you know, I'm safe, that there's nothing wrong with my body. Because the great thing with neuroplastic pain is it's way more treatable than structural pain. It is learned neuropathways in your brain, and you can reverse that. That's truly what happens is you start to basically rewire your brain again to unlearn the pain that's happening to you. Interesting. Yeah. It sounds like there was an element of self-talk, like how you were how you were talking about yourself to yourself, and then that sense of safety. It's hard to believe that you are safe when you are in pain. Mm-hmm. How were you able to create a safety for your own body um, when that pain came up? You're not going to fully believe that your pain's neuroplastic until all of a sudden you're almost out of pain, right? But having that belief at first and finding pieces of evidence, I always tell people, look for evidence where your pain doesn't really act the way structural pain does. And that moment, you know, at the university where I stood up and the pain was gone was a great piece of evidence where it's like, you know, my pain was very tied to my emotional state. And as I started to believe that, the fear starts to reduce just naturally. But it's also about with myself and with others, like it's somatically feeling safe. So like in your body, 
having this light and easy energy when you kind of focus on the pain and being curious about it instead of kind of focusing on it kind of like in hawk mode like if you you're a hawk and you saw a mouse in the field and you're just you know locked in like that's how people kind of focus on their pain with intensity and scrutiny and so switching the way you focus on it and giving yourself messages of safety saying you know there's nothing wrong with my body right now like all that's taking place is my brain's misinterpreting safe signals and telling yourself that you start to calm yourself and as the fear reduces the pain typically dissipates and that's really the secret is it's not about reducing the pain but it's reducing the fear around the pain and reducing you know maybe the danger that you kind of sense in your life in general also so there's two pieces to the therapy i do the first is reducing the fear of the pain but the second is to change your relationship with fear in general and start to feel safe with the emotions that you're having. The therapy I use is called pain reprocessing therapy. And those are the two aspects. And it's just, you know, a set of therapeutic techniques that really starts to retrain the brain to respond to safe signals. So you have this epiphany moment meditating and realizing that actually this pain is not, not a life sentence. It is something that you have some agency over, some control over. At that point, though, you hadn't decided yet to become a pain therapist. No. So walk me through how you went from having your own sort of personal epiphany to saying, you know what, this is valuable. This has changed my life. I want to do this for others as well. It happened early on when I got out of pain because I was already kind of on track. Um, like I think I had just completed my undergrad and I was already on track that I wanted to be a therapist. And I knew like it was so life changing, like I wasn't in despair anymore. Getting out of pain is truly one of the best feelings you could probably ever have, right? <laughs> right. Because it's, it's so freeing. Like I could sit on a couch and not worry about my back hurting. All of a sudden, like you're just fully in life and, and, and enjoying it. And it's so freeing. Early on, I remember being like, I need to, you know, find a way and learn about this stuff so I can support other people to get that because there, there isn't much knowledge around that. And the more and more we learn about the brain, the more realizing that a lot of chronic pain is neuroplastic. Chronic pain, and what I mean by that is like pain that's past three months, is typically the, the threshold. And it shifts in the brain to kind of learning areas associated with learning and memory. And I just, you know, I had this goal that I really wanted to be able to offer this to people and and offer this amazing feeling of getting out of pain. And, and you know, as you're as you're talking, I'm also thinking that you know, of course, you're focusing on neuroplastic pain, but I wonder if there's even some applicability to like acute pain, like pain that is structural, where even if you have a structural pain, like you said, if that pain then becomes chronic, there's still an emotional component to that pain. And you can't obviously fix the structural part of it, but you can, you can, as you say, deal with the fear that's associated with the pain. I wonder if that would also be that some of the skills that you've developed for, for neuroplastic pain would also be applicable for people with structural pain. Yeah, like I think there are skills that apply. The model I use, like pain reprocessing therapy, like it's built on at first, like a lot of education around this and a lot of understanding that the pain is not structural. So that stuff won't apply as much. There is like a clear structural issue that's causing the pain, but reducing your fear and increasing, you know, positive sensations in your body and all of that, of course, is going to 
support someone, even if they do have a structural concern. And so coming to the question of uh, what you learned through this process about yourself, how did it change your identity, this pain? It changed the way, like I became very aware throughout that decade, you know, I did have a couple of times where the pain would come back for two or three weeks when the pressure built up for me. And when I talked about the traits that describe me early on, a lot of people with neuroplastic pain have this intensity level. And that intensity comes with pressure, comes with a lot of self-criticism sometimes, and it comes with a lot of worry. And all these behaviors make you feel unsafe. You know, for myself, I think a big learning is to kind of slow down and take it easy and, and how important it is for me to feel safe. Because I think I can easily be in that kind of lens of danger with viewing the world, not just the pain, but the world around me without even realizing it because I can become so intense and I can be put a lot of pressure on myself. So a lot of it is like softening that. And I think that really has changed me where I'm, I'm very attuned to you know, my emotional state. I'm very attuned to, am I putting too much pressure on myself and feeling that in my body and knowing that I need to slow it down. When the pain comes on, it's kind of a sign. It's a sign that something's going astray in my life right now. It's almost like you're relating to the pain differently, right? Mm -hmm. At the start, it sounds like pain was your enemy. It was something you were trying to get rid of. That power struggle, (laughs) who's going to win, pain or you? And then as you've moved into more of this work, what I'm hearing is that you're you're relating to that pain, not as an enemy, but more as a guide or a teacher yeah. where it's um, it's got something important to communicate to you. Yeah. And that's, that's exactly it. That's such a huge shift for myself and, you know, with the clients I work with that shift in that way. It can be empowering too, I think, because all of a sudden you're, it's not this enemy that you're constantly scanning for and fearing and and, you know, being preoccupied by like, you know, when the pain comes up now, it's not a sense of fear. It's a, it's a sign that basically the dangerous circuits in my brain have become activated because we accept and, you know, I think it's becoming more acceptable, but we accept that physical reactions do happen to emotions all the time. If you become, if you become anxious, your heart rate raises. If you become embarrassed, you know, you might blush. And when we feel unsafe, pain can be triggered. That's a big connection for people to get because for myself, you know, when I put too much pressure on myself or I'm being hypercritical of what I'm doing, I start to create this environment of danger and my brain feels unsafe and then pain's triggered. And so by understanding that, I know like, okay, what do I need to back up on right now? How can I live life in a more easy, light way that's going to give that sense of safety to me, right? I'm also thinking back to what you were talking about, about your music career. I mean, that's an identity that you held pretty close for, it sounds like, a good period of your life. Have you been able to integrate that identity back into your life at all? Yeah, throughout um, early adulthood, like I've played in a number of bands and done lots of that, which is fun, right? Obviously, the dream is no longer to be a full-time musician. Well, you never know. You're still young. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, I'm still young. I can move, but... No, I definitely still have kind of my hands in that area and and enjoy doing that stuff too. You know, where I'm going with that is there seems to be a connection between pain and emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Music is also very much kind of the language of emotion. And I wonder what, you know, if you've explored it at all or, you know, the therapeutic value of music in treating pain. 
yeah, I think there can be utility there for sure. I know my preferences for music in the past, especially in my 20s, was darker music, kind of in that metal, like hardcore scene, which is not the most soothing music you're ever going to like. Probably the farthest extreme of light and easy. And I find that music preferences can affect your emotions. They're not going to change if you're if you're suffering intensely. But a big piece is that, you know, when I'm feeling stressed, sometimes I'll put on music that gives that light and easy energy so I can get that sense of emotion for myself. Because it's, I think that's an unnatural state for myself. My brain's really familiar with being intense around things and, and hyper-focusing. And when I can learn to ease up and live a little bit more effortlessly. I think effortless is a good word. Music that really gives a sense of that, which is not the metal music that I used to listen to. You know, what I'm hearing you describe is that pain can often indicate that there's something that's blocked, that's some kind of emotional expression that's blocked. Um, And if you can find an outlet, whether it's some form of art or music or some kind of outlet of that sort, whether that would help create a little bit of lightness, as you said, and effortlessness for yourself. Yeah, and I think that's so common. Like, I think the first evidence that most people have is they'll be really enjoying a moment or they'll be really excited or pleased with how things are going, and all of a sudden the pain will dissipate greatly. And those are great ways to first start learning that this is really tied to my emotional state. And when my brain feels safe, because when we feel excited or um, at ease, we feel very safe. And so obviously we're going to have times when we are very stressed in life. And at those points, I also also tell people like, you know, self-compassion is such a huge component of that. But it's also important to make sure you have moments where you feel safe and at ease in your day. What's lying ahead for you? You started this business. What do you see as something that you want to accomplish in the next year? Yeah, in the next year, <laughs> it's a big question. Canada doesn't have, like the U.S. is far ahead in terms of the amount of doctors that kind of deal with this, therapists that deal with this. So we're just kind of starting off. A big part for me is getting, you know, the education out there for people to start understanding that this this may be occurring for them and they could reverse the chronic pain that they're kind of dealing with. So I think that's a big piece is kind of educating the public on that. The approach that you're taking isn't the standard approach. No, far from. I think it's come a long way since, you know, Dr. Sarno in the 70s was really pushing some of this stuff. We've come a far way from that. But, you know, in Canada, we still have not many services that offer this. Um, With the therapy I use, I think there's about six therapists. In Canada? Yeah, in Canada. Wow, I didn't realize it was so rare. Yeah, <laughs> okay. yeah. and it's an exciting time because the approach that we use, a huge study was done, an fMRI study where they actually scan people's brains before and after. Two-thirds of people who had back pain, I think the average was like 10.7 years. Most people were in back pain in this study. Yeah, two-thirds of them were pain-free or nearly pain-free after nine sessions. That's amazing. That's like unheard of, really. What a message of hope, too, for for so many people. Um, I wonder if you could send me the link to that study, and I could put that in the episode notes. Yeah, I can Uh, send you it. It's uh, it's yeah, it's it's pretty amazing. It's early on, but it was a pretty big study in terms of fMRI. You know, it was fifty people in the in the pain reprocessing therapy group, and you know, two thirds got pain free or nearly pain free by the end, which is is remarkable. And 
I think that study will really push some of this stuff forward, that therapy can be a cure for lots of people for chronic pain. I don't think most people view it that way. When you do some of this education work, what's the response that you get? With professionals, it's been pretty good. I did a presentation last week and and it was well received um, by everyone there. And I think people are open to it. People in pain, I think it's the extremes. I think some people aren't ready for it. And that's okay. Like I really understand that. I remember early on, I was probably two years in and my friend had suggested that this might be like psychosomatic, I think is the word he used, which was, wasn't a great word for me to hear. And No, that's like all in your head, you know, it's not real. Yeah, I was super angry, right? And I wasn't ready. And that, that's completely fine. You know, as we're winding down, I always like to ask guests, what's, as you're looking over your life, and it's certainly been a journey, yeah. what's the one thing that you're most proud of? I would say the thing that I'm most proud of is, and I think the thing that I work maybe the hardest at is, is with my children. And I think about it in terms of a sense of safety and parenting in that way and making them feel safe. As all parents, you know, sometimes I fall short, but I think I've put a lot of work into that. You know, of course, I'm proud of some of my career accomplishments and all of that, but the fact that I'm able to do the stuff I love in my career while also still caring for my children in that way, I think is is probably my greatest accomplishment that I think that I've worked the hardest at for sure. Beautiful. And if people wanted to learn more about your work and what you're doing, do you have a website? Yeah, I have a website. My company is called Pain Psychotherapy Canada, and it's just painpsychotherapy.ca. So we can put that into the notes. Well, thank you so much. Is there anything I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure we talk about? No, I think it was it was great, Stephanie. You had some good questions, and uh, I hope that was I hope that was good for you. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, it was awesome. Softly Spoken is a Tilted Windmills production. It was hosted and produced by Stefan DeVilliers. If you enjoyed listening to this episode and you'd like to help support us, please share it with others, post it on social media, or leave us a rating or review. Thanks again, and see you next time.